Chapter Three, Part Two of John James Audubon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John James Audubon by John Burroughs. Part Two of Chapter Three. Audubon had the bashfulness and awkwardness of the backwoodsman, and doubtless the naivety and picturesqueness also. These traits, and his very great merits as a painter of wild-life, made him a favorite in Edinburgh society. One day he went to read a paper on the crow to Dr. Brewster, and was so nervous and agitated that he had to pause for a moment in the midst of it. He left the paper with Dr. Brewster, and when he got back again, was much shocked. Quote, he had greatly improved the style, for I had none, but he had destroyed the matter. End quote. During these days Audubon was very busy writing, painting, receiving callers, and dining out. He grew very tired of it all, at times, and longed for the solitude of his native woods. Some days his room was a perfect levee. Quote, it is Mr. Audubon here, and Mr. Audubon there. I only hope they will not make a conceited fool of Mr. Audubon at last. End quote. There seems to have been some danger of this, for he says, quote, I seem in a measure to have gone back to my early days of society and fine dressing, silk stockings and pumps, and all the finery with which I made a pompinjay of myself in my youth. I wear my hair as long as usual. I believe it does as much for me as my paintings. End quote. He wrote to Thomas Sully of Philadelphia, promising to send him his first number, to be presented to the Philadelphia Society, an institution which thought me unworthy to be a member, he writes. About this time he was a guest for a day or two of Earl Morton, at his estate, Domahoy, near Edinburgh. He had expected to see an imposing personage in the great chamberlain to the late Queen Charlotte. What was his relief and surprise, then, to see a small, slender man tottering on his feet, weaker than a newly hatched partridge, who welcomed him with tears in his eyes? The countess, a fair, fresh-complexioned woman, with dark, flashing eyes, wrote her name in his subscription-book, and offered to pay the price in advance. The next day he gave her a lesson in drawing. On his return to Edinburgh, he dined with Captain Hall, to meet Francis Jeffrey. "'Jeffrey is a little man,' he writes, with a serious face and dignified air. He looks both shrewd and cunning, and talks with so much volubility he is rather displeasing. Mrs. Jeffrey was nervous and very much dressed. Early in January he painted his pheasant attacked by a fox. This was his method of proceeding. Quote, I take one, a fox, neatly killed, put him up with wires, and when satisfied with the truth of the position, I take my palette and work as rapidly as possible, the same with my birds. If practicable, I finish the bird at one sitting. Often it is true, of fourteen hours, so that I think they are correct, both in detail and in composition. End quote. In pictures by Landseer and other artists, which he saw in the galleries of Edinburgh, he saw the skilful painter, quote, the style of men who know how to handle a brush and carry a good effect, end quote. But he missed that closeness and fidelity to nature, which to him so much outweighed mere technique. 
Landseer's Death of a Stag affected him like a farce. It was pretty, but not real and true. He did not feel that way about the sermon he heard Sidney Smith preach. Quote, it was a sermon to me. He made me smile, and he made me think deeply. He pleased me at times by painting my foibles with due care, and again I felt the color come to my cheeks as he portrayed my sins. End quote. Later he met Sidney Smith and his fair daughter, and heard the latter sing. Afterwards he had a note from the famous divine, upon which he remarks, quote, The man should study economy. He would destroy more paper in a day than Franklin would in a week. But all great men are more or less eccentric. Walter Scott writes a diminutive hand, very difficult to read. Napoleon, a large scrawling one, still more difficult and Sidney Smith goes uphill all the way with large strides. End quote. Having decided upon visiting London, he yielded to the persuasions of his friends, and had his hair cut before making the trip. He chronicles the event in his journal as a very sad one, in which, quote, the will of God was usurped by the wishes of man. End quote. Shorn of his locks, he probably felt humbled like the stag when he loses his horns. Quitting Edinburgh on April 5th, he visited, in succession, Newcastle, Leeds, York, Shrewsbury, and Manchester, in quest of subscribers to his great work. A few were obtained at each place at two hundred pounds per head. At Newcastle he first met Bewick, the famous wood-engraver, and conceived a deep liking for him. We find him in London on May twenty first, eighteen twenty seven, and not in a very happy frame of mind. Quote, to me, London is just like the mouth of an immense monster, guarded by millions of sharp edged teeth, from which, if I escape unhurt, it must be called a miracle. End quote. It only filled him with a strong desire to be in his beloved woods again. His friend, Basil Hall, had insisted upon his procuring a black suit of clothes. When he put this on to attend his first dinner-party, he spoke of himself as, attired like a mournful raven, and probably more than ever, wished himself in the woods. He early called upon the great portrait-painter, Sir Thomas Lawrence, who inspected his drawings, pronounced them very clever and in a few days brought him several purchasers for some of his animal paintings, thus replenishing his purse with nearly one hundred pounds. Considering Audubon's shy disposition, and his dread of persons in high places, it is curious that he should have wanted to call upon the king, and should have applied to the American minister, Mr. Gallatin, to help him to do so. Mr. Gallatin laughed and said, it is impossible, my dear sir. The king sees nobody. He has the gout, is peevish, and spends his time playing whist at a shilling a rubber. I had to wait six weeks before I was presented to him in my position of ambassador. But his work was presented to the king, who called it fine, and his majesty became a subscriber on the usual terms. Other noble persons followed suit, yet Audubon was despondent. He had removed the publication of his work from Edinburgh to London, from the hands of Mr. Lazars into those of Robert Havel. But the enterprise did not prosper. His agents did not attend to business, nor to his orders, and he soon found himself at bay for means to go forward with the work. 
At this juncture, he determined to make a sortie for the purpose of collecting his dues and to add to his subscribers. He visited Leeds, York, and other towns. Under date of October ninth, at York, he writes in his journal, quote, How often I thought during these visits of poor Alexander Wilson, then travelling as I am now, to procure subscribers, he, as well as myself, was received with rude coldness, and sometimes with that arrogance which belongs to parvenu. A week or two later we find him again in Edinburgh, where he breakfasted with Professor Wilson, Christopher North, whom he greatly enjoyed, a man without stiffness or ceremonies. Quote, no cravat, no waistcoat, but a fine frill of his own profuse beard, his hair flowing uncontrolled, and his speech dashing at once at the object in view, without circumlocution. He gives me comfort by being comfortable himself. In early November he took the coach for Glasgow, he and three other passengers making the entire journey without uttering a single word. Quote, we sat like so many owls of different species, as if afraid of one another. End quote. Four days in Glasgow, and only one subscriber. Early in January, he is back in London, arranging with Mr. Havel for the numbers to be engraved in 1828. One day, on looking up to the new moon, he saw a large flock of wild ducks passing over. Then presently another flock passed. The sight of these familiar objects made him more homesick than ever. He often went to Regent's Park to see the trees, and the green grass, and to hear the sweet notes of the blackbirds and starlings. The blackbird's note revived his drooping spirits. To his wife he writes, It carries my mind to the woods around thee, my Lucy. Now and then a subscriber withdrew his name, which always cut him to the quick, but did not dishearten him. Quote, January 28th. I received a letter from D. Lazars to-day, announcing to me the loss of four subscribers, but these things do not dampen my spirits half so much as the smoke of London. I am as dull as a beetle. End quote. In February, he learned that it was Sir Thomas Lawrence who prevented the British Museum from subscribing to his work. Quote, he considered the drawings so-so, and the engraving and coloring bad. When I remember how he praised these same drawings in my presence, I wonder, that is all. End quote. The rudest man he met in England was the Earl of Canoole. Quote, a small man with a face like the caricature of an owl. End quote. He went for Audubon to tell him that all his birds were alike, and that he considered his work a swindle. Quote, he may really think this, his knowledge is probably small but it is not the custom to send for a gentleman to abuse him in one's own house. Audubon heard his words, bowed, and left him without speaking. In March he went to Cambridge, and met and was dined by many learned men. The university, through its librarian, subscribed for his work. Other subscriptions followed. He was introduced to a judge who wore a wig that might make a capital bag for an Osage Indian during the whole of a cold winter on the Arkansas River. On his way to Oxford, he saw them turn a stag from a cart. Quote, Before probably a hundred hounds and as many huntsmen, a curious land and a curious custom, 
to catch an animal and then set it free merely to catch it again. End quote. At Oxford he received much attention, but complains that not one of the twenty-two colleges subscribed for his work, though two other institutions did. Early in April we find him back in London, lamenting over his sad fate in being compelled to stay in so miserable a place. He could neither write nor draw to his satisfaction, amid the bustle, filth, and smoke. His mind and heart turned eagerly toward America, and to his wife and boys, and he began seriously to plan for a year's absence from England. He wanted to renew and to improve about fifty of his drawings. During this summer of 1828 he was very busy in London, painting, writing, and superintending the coloring of his plates. Under date of August ninth, he writes in his journal, quote, I have been at work from four every morning until dark. I have kept up my large correspondence. My publication goes on well and regularly, and this very day seventy sets have been distributed, yet the number of my subscribers has not increased. On the contrary, I have lost some. End quote. He made the acquaintance of Swainson, and the two men found much companionship in each other, and had many long talks about birds. Quote, Why, Lucy, thou wouldst think that birds were all that we cared for in this world, but thou knowest this is not so. End quote. Together he and Mr. and Mrs. Swainson planned a trip to Paris, which they carried out early in September. It tickled Audubon greatly to find that the Frenchman at the office in Calais, who had never seen him, had described his complexion in his passport as copper-red, because he was an American, all Americans suggesting aborigines. In Paris, they early went to call upon Baron Cuvier. They were told that he was too busy to be seen. Quote, Being determined to look at the great man, we waited— knocked again, and with a certain degree of firmness, sent in our names. The messenger returned, bowed, and led the way upstairs, where in a minute Monsieur Le Baron, like an excellent good man, came to us. He had heard much of my friend Swainson, and greeted him as he deserves to be greeted. He was polite and kind to me, though my name had never made its way to his ears. I looked at him, and here follows the result. Age about sixty-five. Size, corpulent, five feet five, English measure, head large, face wrinkled and brownish, eyes gray, brilliant and sparkling, nose aquiline, large and red, mouth large, with good lips, teeth few, blunted by age, excepting one on the lower jaw, measuring nearly three-quarters of an inch square. End quote. The great naturalist invited his callers to dine with him at six on the next Saturday. They next presented their letter to Geoffrey de St. Hilaire, with whom they were particularly pleased. Neither had he ever heard of Audubon's work. The dinner with Cuvier gave him a nearer view of the manners and habits of the great man. Quote, there was not the show of opulence at this dinner that is seen in the same rank of life in England, no, not by far, but it was a good dinner served à la Française. Neither was it followed by the drinking matches of wine so common at English tables. During his stay in Paris, Audubon saw much of Cuvier and was very kindly and considerately treated by him. 
One day he accompanied a portrait painter to his house, and saw him sit for his portrait. Quote, I see the baron now, quite as plainly as I did this morning, an old green surtout about him, a neckcloth that would have wrapped his whole body if unfolded, loosely tied about his chin, and his silver locks looking like those of a man who loves to study books better than to visit barbers. End quote. Audubon remained in Paris till near the end of October, making the acquaintance of men of science and of artists, and bringing his work to the attention of those who were likely to value it. Baron Cuvier reported favorably upon it to the Academy of Sciences, pronouncing it the most magnificent monument which has yet been erected to ornithology. He obtained thirteen subscribers in France, and spent forty pounds. On November ninth, he is back in London, and soon busy painting, and pressing forward the engraving and coloring of his work. The eleventh number was the first for the year 1829. The winter was largely taken up in getting ready for his return trip to America. He found a suitable agent to look after his interest, collected some money, paid all his debts, and on April first sailed for Portsmouth in the packet-ship Columbia. He was seasick during the entire voyage, and reached New York May 5th. He did not hasten to his family, as would have been quite natural after so long an absence, but spent the summer and part of the fall in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, prosecuting his studies and drawings of birds, making his headquarters in Camden, New Jersey. He spent six weeks in the Great Pine Forest, and much time at Great Egg Harbor, and has given delightful accounts of these trips in his journals. Four hours' sleep out of the twenty-four was his allotted allowance. One often marvels at Audubon's apparent indifference to his wife and his home, for from the first he was given to wandering. Then, too, his carelessness in money matters, and his improvident ways necessitating his wife's toiling to support the family, put him in a rather unfavorable light as a good provider but a perusal of his journal shows that he was keenly alive to all the hardships and sacrifices of his wife, and from first to last in his journeyings he speaks of his longings for home and family. Cut off from all dearest me, he says in one of his youthful journals, and in his latest one he speaks of himself as being as happy as one can be who is three thousand miles from the dearest friend on earth. Clearly some impelling force held him to the pursuit of his work, hardships or no hardships. Fortunately for him, his wife shared his belief in his talents, and in their ultimate recognition. Under date of October eleventh, 1829, he writes, I am at work and have done much, but I wish I had eight pairs of hands, and another body to shoot the specimens. Still, I am delighted at what I have accumulated in drawings this season." forty-two drawings in four months, eleven large, eleven middle-size, and twenty-two small, comprising ninety-five birds, from eagles downwards, with plants, nests, flowers, and sixty different kinds of eggs. I live alone, see scarcely any one besides those belonging to the house where I lodge. I rise long before day, and work till nightfall, when I take a walk and to bed." Audubon's capacity for work was extraordinary. His enthusiasm and perseverance were equally extraordinary. His purposes and ideas fairly possessed him. 
never did a man consecrate himself more fully to the successful completion of the work of his life than did audubon to the finishing of his american ornithology during this month audubon left camden and turned his face toward his wife and children crossing the mountains to pittsburg in the mail-coach with his dog and gun thence down the ohio in a steamboat to louisville where he met his son victor whom he had not seen for five years after a few days here with his two boys he started for bayou sarah to see his wife beaching mr johnson's house in the early morning he went at once to his wife's apartment Quote, her door was ajar already she was dressed and sitting by her piano on which a young lady was playing i pronounced her name gently she saw me and the next moment i held her in my arms her emotion was so great i feared i had acted rashly but tears relieved our hearts once more we were together End quote. Mrs. Audubon soon settled up her affairs at Bayou Sarah, and the two set out early in January 1830 for Louisville, thence to Cincinnati, thence to Wheeling, and so on to Washington, where Audubon exhibited his drawings to the House of Representatives and received their subscriptions as a body. In Washington he met the President, Andrew Jackson, and made the acquaintance of Edward Everett, thence to Baltimore, where he obtained three more subscribers, thence to new york from which port he sailed in april with his wife on the packet-ship pacific for england and arrived at liverpool in twenty-five days the second sojourn in england lasted till the second of august eighteen thirty one the time was occupied in pushing the publication of his birds canvassing the country for new subscribers painting numerous pictures for sale writing his ornithological biography living part of the time in edinburgh and part of the time in london with two or three months passed in france where there were fourteen subscribers while absent in america he had been elected a fellow of the royal society of london and on may sixth took his seat in the great hall he needed some competent person to assist him in getting his manuscript ready for publication and was so fortunate as to obtain the services of MacGilveray the biographer of British birds. Audubon had learned that three editions of Wilson's Ornithology were soon to be published in Edinburgh, and he set to work vigorously to get his book out before them. Assisted by MacGilveray, he worked hard at his biography of the birds, writing all day, and Mrs. Audubon making a copy of the work to send to America to secure copyright there. Writing to her sons at this time, Mrs. Audubon says, Quote, nothing is heard but the steady movement of the pen your father is up and at work before dawn and writes without ceasing all day when the first volume was published audubon offered it to two publishers both of whom refused it so he published it himself in march eighteen thirty one in april on his way to london he travelled on that extraordinary road called the railway at the rate of twenty-four miles an hour the first volume of his bird pictures was completed this summer and in bringing it out forty thousand dollars had passed through his hands it had taken four years to bring that volume before the world during which time no less than fifty of his subscribers representing the sum of fifty six thousand dollars had abandoned him 
so that at the end of that time he had only one hundred and thirty names standing on his list. It was no easy thing to secure enough men to pledge themselves to one thousand dollars for a work, the publication of which must, of necessity, extend over eight or ten years. Few enterprises, involving such labor and expense, have ever been carried through against such odds. The entire cost of the birds exceeded one hundred thousand dollars, yet the author never faltered in this gigantic undertaking. On August 2nd, Audubon and his wife sailed for America, and landed in New York on September 4th. They at once went to Louisville, where the wife remained with her sons, while the husband went to Florida, where the winter of 1831-2 was spent, prosecuting his study of our birds. His adventures and experiences in Florida he has embodied in his Floridian episodes, the live ochres, spring garden, deer-hunting, Sandy Island, The Wreckers, The Turtles, Death of a Pirate, and other sketches. Stopping at Charleston, South Carolina, on this southern trip, he made the acquaintance of the Reverend John Bachman, and a friendship between these two men was formed that lasted as long as they both lived. Subsequently, Audubon's sons, Victor and John, married Dr. Bachman's two eldest daughters. In the summer of 1832, Audubon, accompanied by his wife and two sons, made a trip to Maine and New Brunswick, going very leisurely by private conveyance through these countries, studying the birds, the people, the scenery, and gathering new material for his work. His diaries give minute accounts of these journeyings. He was impressed by the sobriety of the people of Maine. They seemed to have had a Maine law at that early date. Quote, for on asking for brandy, rum, or whiskey, not a drop could I obtain. He saw much of the lumbermen, and was a deeply interested spectator of their ways and doings. Some of his best descriptive passages are contained in these diaries. In October he is back in Boston, planning a trip to Labrador, and intent on adding more material to his birds, by another year in his home country. That his interest abroad in the meantime might not suffer by being entirely in outside hands, he sent his son Victor, now a young man of considerable business experience, to England to represent him there. The winter of 1832 and 1833, Audubon seems to have spent mainly in Boston, drawing and redrawing, and there he had his first serious illness. In the spring of 1833, a schooner was chartered, and accompanied by five young men, his youngest son, John Woodhouse among them, Audubon started on his Labrador trip, which lasted till the end of summer. It was an expensive and arduous trip, but was greatly enjoyed by all hands, and was fruitful in new material for his work. Seventy-three bird-skins were prepared, many drawings made, and many new plants collected. The weather in Labrador was for the most part rainy, foggy, cold, and windy, and his drawings were made in the cabin of his vessel, often under great difficulties. He makes this interesting observation upon the eider duck. Quote, in one nest of the eider, ten eggs were found. This is the most we have seen as yet in any one nest. The female draws the down from her abdomen as far toward her breast as her bill will allow her to do, but the feathers are not pulled, 
and on examination of several specimens I found these well and regularly planted, and cleaned from their original down, as a forest of trees is cleared of its undergrowth. In this state the female is still well clothed, and little or no difference can be seen in the plumage unless examined. End quote. He gives this realistic picture of salmon fishermen that his party saw in Labrador. Quote, on going to a house on the shore, we found it a tolerably good cabin, floored, containing a good stove, a chimney, and an oven at the bottom of this, like the ovens of the French peasants, three beds, and a table whereon the breakfast of the family was served. This consisted of coffee in large bowls, good bread, and fried salmon. Three Labrador dogs came and sniffed about us, and then returned under the table whence they had issued, with no appearance of anger. Two men, two women, and a babe formed the group, which I addressed in French. They were French-Canadians, and had been here several years, winter and summer, and are agents for the Fur and Fish Company, who give them food, clothes, and about eighty dollars per annum. They have a cow and an ox, about an acre of potatoes planted in sand, seven feet of snow in winter, and two-thirds less salmon than was caught here ten years since. Then, three hundred barrels was a fair season. Now, one hundred is the maximum. This is because they will catch the fish, both ascending and descending the river. During winter the men hunt foxes, martens, and sables, and kill some bear of the black kind. But neither deer nor other game is to be found, without going a great distance in the interior, where reindeer are now and then procured, one species of grouse, and one of ptarmigan, the latter white at all seasons, the former, I suppose to be, the willow-grouse. The men would neither sell nor give us a single salmon, saying that so strict was their orders, that should they sell one, the place might be taken from them. If this should prove the case everywhere, I shall not purchase many for my friends. The furs which they collect are sent off to Quebec at the first opening of the waters in spring, and not a skin of any sort was here for us to look at. End quote. He gives a vivid picture of the face of nature in Labrador on a fine day, under date of July 2nd. Quote, a beautiful day for Labrador, drew another M. Articus, went on shore, and was most pleased with what I saw. The country, so wild and grand, is of itself enough to interest any one in its wonderful dreariness, its mossy, grey-clothed rocks, heaped and thrown together as if by chance, in the most fantastical groups imaginable, huge masses hanging on minor ones, as if about to roll themselves down from their doubtful-looking situations, into the depths of the sea beneath, bays without end, sprinkled with rocky islands of all shapes and sizes, wherein every fissure, a guillemot or cormorant, or some other wild bird retreats to secure its egg, and raise its young, or save itself from the hunter's pursuit. The peculiar cast of the sky, which never seems to be certain, butterflies flitting over snowbanks, probing beautiful dwarf flowerets of many hues, pushing their tender stems from the thick bed of moss which everywhere covers the granite rocks. Then the morasses, wherein you plunge up to your knees, or the walking over the stubborn, dwarfish shrubbery, making one think that as he goes he treads down the forests of Labrador. 
the unexpected bunting, or perhaps Sylvia, which perchance, and indeed as if by chance alone, you now and then see flying before you, or hear singing from the creeping plants on the ground. The beautiful fresh-water lakes, on the rugged crests of greatly elevated islands, wherein the red and black-necked divers swim as proudly as swans do in other latitudes, and where the fish appear to have been cast as strayed beings from the surplus food of the ocean. All, all is wonderfully grand, wild, ay, and terrific. And yet how beautiful it is now, when one sees the wild bee moving from one flower to another in search of food, which doubtless is as sweet to it as the essence of the magnolia is to those of favored Louisiana, the little ring-plover rearing its delicate and tender young, the eider-duck swimming man-of-war-like amid her floating brood, like the guardship of a most valuable convoy, the white-crowned bunting's sonorous note reaching the ear ever and anon, the crowds of sea-birds in search of places wherein to repose or to feed. How beautiful is all this in this wonderful rocky desert at this season, the beginning of July, compared with the horrid blast of winter which here predominate by the will of God, when every rock is rendered smooth, with snow so deep that every step the traveller takes is as if entering into his grave. For even should he escape an avalanche, his eye dreads to search the horizon, for full well he knows that snow, snow is all that can be seen. I watched the ring-plover for some time. The parents were so intent on saving their young, that they both lay on the rocks as if shot, quivering their wings, and dragging their bodies as if quite disabled. We left them and their young to the care of the Creator. I would not have shot one of the old ones, or taken one of the young for any consideration, and I was glad my young men were as forbearing. The El Marinus is extremely abundant here. They are forever harassing every other bird, sucking their eggs, and devouring their young. They take here the place of eagles and hawks. Not an eagle have we seen yet, and only two or three small hawks, and one small owl. Yet what a harvest they would have here, were there trees for them to rest upon. End quote. On his return from Labrador in September, Audubon spent three weeks in New York, after which, with his wife, he started upon another southern trip, pausing at Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, and Richmond. In Washington he made some attempts to obtain permission to accompany a proposed expedition to the Rocky Mountains, under government patronage but the cold and curt manner in which Cass, then Secretary of War, received his application, quite disheartened him. But he presently met Washington Irving, whose friendly face and cheering words revived his spirits. How one would like a picture of that meeting in Washington between Audubon and Irving, two men who in so many ways were kindred spirits. Charleston, South Carolina, was reached late in October, and at the home of their friend, Bachman, the Audubon seemed to have passed the most of the winter of 1833-4. My time was well employed. I hunted for new birds, or searched for more knowledge of old. I drew, I wrote many long pages. I obtained a few new subscribers, and made some collections on account of my work. His son Victor wrote, 
desiring the presence of his father in England, and on April 16th we find him with his wife and son John again embarked for Liverpool. In due time they are in London, where they find Victor well, and the business of publication going on prosperously. One of the amusing incidents of this sojourn, narrated in the diaries, is Audubon's and his son's interview with the Baron Rothschild, to whom he had a letter of introduction from a distinguished American banking-house. The Baron was not present when they entered his private office, but, quote, Soon a corpulent man appeared, hitching up his trousers, and a face red with the exertion of walking, and without noticing any one present, dropped his fat body into a comfortable chair, as if caring for no one else in this wide world but himself. While the baron sat, we stood, with our hats held respectfully in our hands. I stepped forward, and with a bow, tendered my credentials. "'Pray, sir,' said the man of golden consequence, is this a letter of business, or is it a mere letter of introduction? This I could not well answer, for I had not read the contents of it, and I was forced to answer rather awkwardly, that I could not tell. The banker then opened the letter, read it with the manner of one who was looking only at the temporal side of things, and after reading it said, This is only a letter of introduction and I expect from its contents that you are the publisher of some book or other, and need my subscription. Had a man the size of a mountain spoke to me in that arrogant style in America, I should have indignantly resented it. But where I, then, was it seemed best to swallow and digest it as well as I could. So in reply to the offensive arrogance of the banker, I said I should be honoured by his subscription to the birds of America. Sir, he said, I never sign my name to any subscription list, but you may send in your work, and I will pay for a copy of it. Gentlemen, I am busy. I wish you good morning. We were busy men, too, and so, bowing respectfully, we retired, pretty well satisfied with the small slice of his opulence which our labor was likely to obtain. A few days afterwards I sent the first volume of my work, half-bound, and all the numbers besides, then published. On seeing them, we were told that he ordered the bearer to take them to his house, which was done directly. Number after number was sent and delivered to the baron, and after eight or ten months, my son made out his account and sent it by Mr. Havel, my engraver, to his banking-house. The baron looked at it with amazement and cried out, "'What, a hundred pounds for birds? Why, sir, I will give you five pounds, and not a farthing more.' Representations were made to him of the magnificence and expense of the work, and how pleased his baroness and wealthy children would be to have a copy. But the great financier was unrelenting. The copy of the work was actually sent back to Mr. Havel's shop, and as I found that instituting legal proceedings against him would cost more than it would come to, I kept the work, and afterwards sold it to a man with less money but a nobler heart." What a distance there is between two such men as the Baron Rothschild of London and the Merchant of Savannah. End quote. Audubon remained in London during the summer of 1834, and in the fall removed to Edinburgh, where he hired a house and spent a year and a half at work on his ornithological biography, the second and third volumes of which were published during that time. In the summer of 1836 he returned to London, where he settled his family in Cavendish Square, 
and in July, with his son John, took passage at Portsmouth for New York, desiring to explore more thoroughly the southern states, for new material for his work. On his arrival in New York, Audubon, to his deep mortification, found that all his books, papers, and valuable and curious things, which he had collected both at home and abroad, had been destroyed in the great fire in New York, in 1835. In September he spent some time in Boston, where he met Brewer and Nuttall, and made the acquaintance of Daniel Webster, Judge Story, and others, writing to his son in England at this time, admonishing him to carry on the work, should he himself be taken away prematurely, he advises him thus, quote, Should you deem it wise to remove the publication of the work to this country, I advise you to settle in Boston. I have faith in the Bostonians. End quote. In Salem he called upon a wealthy young lady by the name of Silsby, who had the eyes of a gazelle, but, quote, when I mentioned subscription, it seemed to fall on her ears, not as the cadence of the wood-thrush or of the mocking-bird does on mine, but as a shower-bath in cold January. End quote. From Boston, Audubon returned in October to New York, and thence went southward through Philadelphia to Washington, carrying with him letters from Washington Irving to Benjamin F. Butler, then the Attorney General of the United States, and to Martin Van Buren, who had just been elected to the presidency. Butler was then quite a young man. Quote, he read Washington Irving's letter, laid it down, and began a long talk about his talents, and after a while came round to my business, saying that the government allows so little money to the departments, that he did not think it probable that their subscription could be obtained without a law to that effect from Congress. End quote. At this time he also met President General Jackson. Quote, he was very kind, and as soon as he heard that we intended departing to-morrow evening for Charleston, invited us to dine with him on Familia. At the hour named we went to the White House, and were taken into a room where the President soon joined us. I sat close to him. We spoke of olden times, and touched slightly on politics, and I found him very averse to the cause of the Texans. The dinner was what might be called plain and substantial in England. I dined from a fine young turkey shot within twenty miles of Washington. The general drank no wine, but his health was drunk by us more than once, and he ate very moderately, his last dish consisting of bread and milk. End quote. In November Audubon is again at the house of his friend, Dr. Bachman, in Charleston, South Carolina. Here he passed the winter of 1836-7, to making excursions to various points farther south, going as far as Florida. It was at this time that he seems to have begun, in connection with Dr. Bachman, his studies in natural history, which resulted in the publication, a few years later, of the Quadrupeds of North America. In the spring he left Charleston, and set out to explore the Gulf of Mexico going to Galveston, and thence well into Texas, where he met General Sam Houston. Here is one of his vivid, realistic pen-pictures of the famous Texan. Quote, we walked towards the President's house, accompanied by the Secretary of the Navy, and as soon as we rose above the bank, we saw before us a level of far-extending prairie, 
destitute of timber, and rather poor in soil, and most of them without roofs, tents, and a liberty pole, with the capital, were all exhibited to our view at once. We approached the President's mansion, however, wading through water above our ankles. This abode of President Houston is a small log-house, consisting of two rooms and a passage through, after the southern fashion. The moment we stepped over the threshold, on the right hand of the passage, we found ourselves ushered into what in other countries would be called the antechamber. The ground floor, however, was muddy and filthy. A large fire was burning. A small table covered with paper and writing material was in the center. Camp beds, trunks, and different materials were strewed about the room. We were at once presented to several members of the cabinet, some of whom bore the stamp of men of intellectual ability, simple, though bold, in their general appearance. Here we were presented to Mr. Crawford, an agent of the British minister to Mexico, who has come here on some secret mission. The President was engaged in the opposite room on some national business, and we could not see him for some time. Meanwhile, we amused ourselves by walking to the capital, which was yet without a roof, and the floors, benches, and tables of both houses of Congress were as well saturated with water as our clothes had been in the morning. Being invited by one of the great men of the place to enter a booth to take a drink of grog with him, we did so, but I was rather surprised that he offered his name instead of the cash to the barkeeper. We first caught sight of President Houston as he walked from one of the grog shops where he had been to prevent the sale of ardent spirits. He was on his way to his house, and wore a large gray coarse hat, and the bulk of his figure reminded me of the appearance of General Hopkins of Virginia, for like him he is upwards of six feet high, and strong in proportion. But I observed a scowl in the expression of his eyes, that was forbidding and disagreeable. We reached his abode before him, but he soon came, and we were presented to his excellency. He was dressed in a fancy velvet coat, and trousers trimmed with broad gold lace. Around his neck was tied a cravat, somewhat in the style of seventy-six. He received us kindly, was desirous of retaining us for a while, and offered us every facility within his power. He at once removed us from the anteroom to his private chamber, which, by the way, was not much cleaner than the former. We were severally introduced by him to the different members of his cabinet and staff, and at once asked to drink grog with him, which we did, wishing success to his new republic. Our talk was short, but the impression which was made on my mind at the time, by himself, his officers, and his place of abode, can never be forgotten. End quote. Late in the summer of 1837, Audubon, with his son John, and his new wife, the daughter of Dr. Bachman, returned to England for the last time. He finally settled down again in Edinburgh, and prepared the fourth volume of his ornithological biography. This work seems to have occupied him a year. The volume was published in November, 1838. More drawings for his Birds of America were published the next winter and also the fifth volume of the biography, which was published in May, 1839. In the fall of that year, the family returned to America, and settled in New York City, at 86 White Street. His great work, The Birds of America, had been practically completed. 
incredible difficulties had been surmounted, and the goal of his long years of striving had been reached. About one hundred and seventy-five copies of his birds had been delivered to subscribers, eighty of the number in this country. In a copy of the Ornithological Biography, given in 1844 by Audubon to J. Prescott Hall, the following note, preserved in the Magazine of American History, 1877, was written by Mr. Hall. It is reproduced here in spite of its variance from statements now accepted. Mr. Audubon told me in the year 1840-something that he did not sell more than forty copies of his great work in England, Ireland, Scotland, and France, of which Louis-Philippe took ten. The following received their copies, but never paid for them. George the Fourth, Duchess of Clarence, Marquis of Londonderry, Princess of Hesse-Homburg. An Irish lord whose name he would not give took two copies and paid for neither. Rothschild paid for his copy, but with great reluctance. He further said that he sold seventy-five copies in America, twenty-six in New York, and twenty-four in Boston, that the work cost him twenty-seven thousand pounds, and that he lost twenty-five thousand dollars by it. He said that Louis-Philippe offered to subscribe for one hundred copies if he would publish the work in Paris. This he found could not be done as it would have required forty years to finish it, as things were then in Paris. Of this conversation, I made a memorandum at the time, which I read over to Mr. Audubon, and he pronounced it correct. J. Prescott Hall End of chapter 3